When you're celebrating your senior year, or maybe it's your last week at a job, how do you make the most out of every last moment? That's today on our podcast. Hey everyone, it's Karen G from the Tower Hill Communications team. Thanks for tuning in to our weekly podcast. You can listen here each week to catch up on all of our latest sermons, and we hope that what you hear inspires you to want more so that you'll continue on your own personal faith journey. We're in part nine of our sermon series called Breaking News, the Gospel of Mark. So let's kick it off to Pastor Jason Tucker right now. Good morning, Tower Hill Church Online. I'm Pastor Jason. It's so good to be with you again today as we continue our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark that we're calling Breaking News. Just like the news that comes across your TV screen and this just in, right? Here's some information that's going to change everything for you in this moment on this particular topic. And what Mark believed was this was the news to end all news. This was the good news, the best news that anybody could ever hear that death has been defeated, that Jesus did something on the cross that changes everything. And if you've been watching us every week or been participating in worship, you know that last week we were talking about the difference a little bit between the Christian faith and some of the other major religions of the world. Because a question that often gets asked is, aren't all religions basically saying the same thing? And we unpacked this a bit last week, so if you missed it, I encourage you to go back and to watch it. But Uh, Really, out of these religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam, whether nirvana, enlightenment, or paradise, it's all about what you do to earn your relationship with God, what you do to earn your afterlife. And this is what makes Christianity so incredibly different. Uh, Well, it's one of the things that makes Christianity so incredibly different. And I also want to make sure that it's clear that I'm not trying to disparage other religions. I'm just trying to show you how Christ is different. Jesus is a lot different. Not only is he the only one of these religious leaders who uh, is not dead and buried, right? And it has not been proven that he has been dead and buried. He's the only one that claims to have been God, to have been risen from the dead. But Christianity isn't about what we do because we can't do enough. You can't earn your way to God, which is the whole point. It's about what God does And what you do then to receive what God already did for you on the cross. In other words, we can't be righteous enough. We can't be perfect enough. So Jesus accomplished that for us. And what he asks in return in order to sort of unlock God's grace in our lives is faith. But it's not something we earn. It's the whole grace versus what's called works uh, or deeds. It's not something that we accomplish. It's something that God accomplishes for us. Jesus is different. And as we've been unpacking Mark's gospel, we've seen all the ways that Jesus is different, right? So we're seeing people say, like, we never see anything like this. He's teaching with authority. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's doing all these miraculous things. This is different than anything we've ever experienced before. And, of course, now in this part of Mark's gospel, we just, again, last week got to the point that was a real turning point in Jesus' ministry, which was the transfiguration. That here Jesus' appearance changes and he becomes dazzling white, whiter than any bleach could get his clothes. And he's meeting with Elijah and Moses. And again, we unpacked this a bit last week. But 
The idea is Jesus' true identity is revealed in front of a couple of his disciples. And it's a turning point because everything that happens after this, you get a sense that there's a higher urgency. He's starting to do things now at the end for the last time. Maybe you've experienced a little bit of this. I know I certainly have. Uh, This is a picture of my Aunt Susie and Uncle Phil's dining room. And I know it might not look like much to you, but to me, this is the heartbeat of our family history. You see, my aunt and uncle really became the parental figures in our immediate family because my parents were gone. And my cousin, who I'm very close with, uh, he lost his mother at a young age. And so Aunt Susie and Uncle Phil became the hub of the family. So every Christmas and Easter and birthday, we would sit and we'd put the extensions on the table and bring chairs from all over the house. And that's where we would gather. And some of my best memories are in the dining room. And I'm thinking about, you know, when my mom was alive and all the the laughs that we had around that table, playing board games, eating Chinese food, singing happy birthday, whatever it was. And a couple years ago, they sold the house so they could downsize and be in a place that can meet their needs. And I am so sentimental (laughs) that, you know, every time we did something, I kept, I kept saying and thinking, oh, this is the last Christmas. Oh, this is the last Easter. Oh, this is the last birthday we're going to have here. And I found that each moment had a deeper significance as we were doing things for the last time. And I even went around and I snapped pictures of the house, all the different rooms, so I'd always remember what they looked like. I know, I'm really sentimental. I even did this when I traded in my Jeep. So, uh... 2015, I, I had the lease ended on the Jeep and uh, I had to get something much more pragmatic for our family because it didn't fit everybody. But man, I love that car. And I, I, the feeling I had when I had the top down and I'm driving it to go return the lease, I'm like, oh, this is terrible. But every moment it's like, oh, this is the last time I'm going to do this. This is the last time I'm going to do this. It's funny, even with a Jeep. Now, now listen, it's not just cars or dining rooms, but you also think about the relationships in your life, right? Maybe some of you have experienced when it's the last time you did something with someone. It's, it's deeper. It's different. It's more emotional. Now, I say this because when you realize it's the last time you'll do something, every moment has significance. You'll have increased emotion and increased urgency. Like, we've got to do everything we can to carpe diem, to make the most of this moment. And I think... This is a bit of what Jesus is experiencing now, is he gets ready to take the last journey with his disciples that he'll ever take this side of the cross. The last time they'll be together in this way as they prepare to head for Jerusalem. But you almost get a sense in this part of Mark's gospel that Jesus is a little emotionally raw. He seems a little different than he was before the transfiguration. It's like, I don't know, were the emotions catching up with him? Was uh, certainly a sense of urgency. He clearly felt like he needed to communicate with his disciples. But, well, you'll see what I mean. Uh, Here we jump into this section of chapter 10 where uh, a man comes and says, you know, my boy, you've got to heal my boy. He's got an impure spirit. And this is Jesus' response. Verse 19, you unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, How long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
That sounds kind of harsh, right? Let's keep going. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. This doesn't seem all that different from some of the requests that Jesus has gotten before. But watch Jesus' response. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I, I love that. I love That's one of my favorite responses in the Bible because it's so honest. And I feel like it's something that you and I can share all the time. Okay, Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. But you get a sense in this interaction, like Jesus is, is short with him. Now, of course, he sees the man coming. And throughout Scripture, Jesus is interacting with people in the way they need to be interacted with. And he knew, perhaps, that this man was going to question whether or not Jesus had the power to do it. And maybe he's feeling that frustration in the morning. I, I, I don't know what it is in that moment, but clearly he seems a little bit raw, a little bit different as he begins this journey now with his disciples. And I can only imagine, like, if it's the last time you're doing something with people that you love, and especially, you know, he's trying to teach these disciples so they can carry on the good work. Like, he wants to make sure that they get it. There's an urgency about what he's doing because there's not much time left. So if we're looking at this map, it's a little bit different than the map we've been looking at before, but you'll see it's quite a journey from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. And uh, this is this is part of the religious feast schedule where people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem and the city would swell with people. A city that normally is about 20,000 or 30,000 in population would swell to over 150,000 for these religious days. But the journey would take about a week. And again, it would be the last trip with his disciples and he undoubtedly wanted to pour into them to make sure that he kept hammering home what was going to happen, what he was going to ask of them, what all of this means, all the ministry that they've done over the last three years, what does it all mean? And you really feel this urgency in Jesus, as you'll see in just a moment. Now, why Jerusalem? Well, it was time for the Passover, and Passover was one of the three festivals that must be celebrated in Jerusalem because it had to do with worshiping at the temple. So people will come from all over. Um, there's all sorts of things to parse out here. It was originally part of another festival, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, and Passover got kind of lumped into there. But either way, it was one of those times where people would make a pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem to celebrate this relig religious feast day. So they're on their way for the journey, and you'll see the route that they took. I Just to give you a visual if you see, uh, they're leaving the area of Galilee, and then they kind of cut across on the east side of the Jordan River. And the reason was they didn't want to pass through Samaria, most likely. I know uh, there are other times Jesus makes a direct shot through Samaria. But instead, he goes through more Jewish-friendly areas. And, you know, maybe it's because for this last trip, he really wants to just focus on his disciples 
more than sort of pass through enemy territory, if you will, which he did before. And he ministered to people before. I mean, Jacob's well, the woman at the well, that all happened there. Um, you know, he had plenty of interactions with Samaritans. And But for this trip, uh, it's most likely that he would have passed here on the east side of the Jordan and then end up in Jericho. And if you look closely at chapter uh, 10 or chapters 9 and 10, you'll see he starts in Galilee, he works his way down, and then he ends up in Jericho. So he's, he's taking this trip with his disciples, and an interesting chain of things happens that, I, I don't know, I just really noticed when I was reading this chapter. It says, he took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me few verses later it says if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me and he's referring to the children that are in his presence to stumble it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea yikes right so don't mess with the kids but then the, there's another reference to children and this it doesn't seem like we're getting all of this uh, very much and then all of a sudden we're like cascaded in all these children references Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. Kind of interesting, right? Like Jesus, all of a sudden, is real big on trying to tell them, like, you have to receive the kingdom of God like these children. Don't stop the children coming to me. They're the examples of, and Why? What's the point about children that Jesus is trying to make? What's he trying to point out? Is it that children are more trusting and we're to be like that? Or more accepting, we're to be like that? Are children just more innocent? I don't know. I got kids. I don't think they're any more innocent. <laughs> All right? I don't know if that's it. What is it. What is it that Jesus is getting at? Here's what I think it is. The people who are most open to receiving God's grace are the ones who don't believe they've earned it. Like children. Right? If this whole lesson in Mark's gospel seems to be, it's not you earning your salvation, it's the grace of God given to you through faith. Then maybe the point he's making about the children, now I'm not saying, oh, Jesus of course loves children, it's not that, but I feel like He's making a point. He's driving it home. You need to be like them. You need to be open enough to receive God's grace. You don't have to feel like you're owed it. You're owed salvation. And there were two ways that we've seen that in Mark's gospel, right? The disciples who just couldn't quite get there yet with faith. Or with Pharisees who couldn't quite get their heads around it. Or felt like Jesus was too outside the lines. 
I think the example of children is, you know, they're more open to receiving grace. Let's keep going. Chapter 10, verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Right? He feels like he's a little short with people. Again, I, I think it's to do, now this isn't what scripture says, but this is my interpretation. I think it's to do with, this is, this is it. Everything is important and poignant and urgent. And he's trying to get his point across and he's frustrated. I'm sure he's starting to feel a lot of mixed emotions about what he's about to go through. No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Like, in other words, if anyone's going to inherit, inherit eternal life, I've done all the requirements. So, like, I'm asking you, but I'm not really asking you. I'm just kind of using this as an opportunity to brag that I'm good enough. Right? That's, that's the sense that he is uh, kind of throwing out there. That's the vibe of, of this guy. All these I have kept since I was a boy. Like, now what? What else is there? Jesus looked at him and loved him. I love that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And what did he say out of love? He said, one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Interesting that he says children here. After he just focused on children being able to receive grace to get past the I deserve it mode. He then turns and he calls his disciples children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It feels like he's making a point here. Again, it's not about do you know enough? Are you good enough? Have you done enough to earn your way to God? That's the thinking that has created a barrier between you and God. That very thing that you think is going to save you is actually destroying you. Because there's a different kind of math. There's a different kind of calculus going on. Jesus is earning it for you. Faith helps you to receive it, to receive God's grace. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. You get the sense in this journey that Jesus' heart is definitely heavy. Why wouldn't it be? Maybe he too is is mourning that this is the last time he'll be with his disciples in this way. And there's so much still to make sure that they understand. 
He's spending more time teaching. He seems a little more over it when it comes to dealing with, with people because, you know, you get sense his building frustration. Not sin. I think it shows his frustration isn't necessarily sin because Jesus seems to demonstrate it. But yeah, he's just kind of raw. And this is just an aside. Notice he said, we are going up to Jerusalem. And you're like, wait a minute, pastor. I saw the map and it looks like you're going north to south. What do you mean going up? Whenever I think up, I think north. Um, well, it's because Jerusalem was the city on a hill. It was on top of a hill. And uh, those the, many of the psalms that are written as songs of pilgrimage, I lift my eyes to the hills, right? The idea of you're looking up to Jerusalem, to where the temple would sit on top. And so the presence of God being that place that you physically look up to as you travel on your pilgrimage to Jerusalem would have been very powerful. But that's why he said, we are going up to Jerusalem because they're going uphill. Then they came to Jericho. Now, if you look at their route, this would have been probably the last stop before Jerusalem. They came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now this is pretty much the last thing that happens before his entry into Jerusalem. And I think it couldn't be any more poignant a last thing. Your faith has healed you. If you want to have sight, spiritual sight, it's faith that's going to make you see. Because think about it, what do these stories, what's the thread that holds them together? The healing of the boy, the little children, the healing of Bartimaeus. What do these things have in common? That if you have faith, you can receive the kingdom of God and it will heal you. You can receive the breaking news that Jesus has accomplished what you and I cannot. And it will heal you one way or another. Faith will heal you. What about you today? as you're thinking through all this stuff. Could you use a little more faith? Maybe your prayer, maybe all of our prayer is something like that father of the boy who was healed. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Where are you stuck in receiving the grace that God wants to give you? Are there some hurts in your soul that haven't been healed, haven't been mended? Maybe it's a faith thing. Some people think it's, well, I don't know enough about God thing. I need more Bible literacy or Bible study. And that's all well and good. But oftentimes, it's, I haven't let Jesus in enough. I, I, if, if I imagine that my heart is a home, I've let him into the foyer. I've let him into the sitting area, but I haven't let him all the way in. Like the dining room, the heartbeat of the home. I haven't let him into the heartbeat yet. What would that look like for you? I think for all of us, we are confronted with a Jesus who just wants us to believe, to believe and to receive, to stop our striving. Our human striving isn't what's going to get it done. It's our human kneeling, our human humility, our ability to receive what he wants to give us that changes 
everything. Breaking news. This just in. The kingdom of God has broken through and it can break through to you through faith. Amen.